Chapter 3 of The Soul Winner by Charles Haddon Spurgeon Qualifications for Soul Winning Godward, that is the Godward qualifications Your main business is to win souls Like shoeing smiths, we need to know a great many things Just as the smith must know about horses and how to make shoes for them So we must know about souls and how to win them for God in this chapter, I shall address part of the subject of qualifications as we start to look at the set of qualifications that are Godward. As I take this approach, I'll try to treat the subject in a somewhat common-sense style and ask you to judge for yourselves what those qualifications would be. For instance, which qualifications would God naturally look for in his servants? What qualifications would he be likely to approve and most likely to use? You must know that every workman, if he is wise, uses a tool to accomplish the purpose he has in mind. Some artists have never been able to play except upon their own violin, nor paint except with their own favorite brush and palette. Certainly, the great God, the mightiest of all workers in his great artistic work of soul winning, loves to have his own special tools. In the original creation, he used only his own instruments. For he spoke and it was done, Psalm 33.9. In the new creation, the effectual agent is still his powerful word. He speaks through the ministry of his servants. Therefore, they must be fit trumpets for him to speak, for him to speak through, and fit instruments for him to use to convey his word to the ears and hearts of men. Based on this, judge whether God will use you. Imagine yourself in his place and think what kind of men you would be most likely to use if you were in the position of the Most High God. Holiness of Character I'm sure you would say, first of all, a man who is to be a soul winner must have holiness of character. How few who attempt to preach think enough about this. If they did, it would strike them at once that the Eternal would never use dirty tools, that the very holy Jehovah would only select holy instruments to accomplish his work. No wise man pours his wine into dirty bottles. No kind and good parent allows his children to go to see an immoral play or movie. In the same way, God will not work with instruments who compromise his own character. Suppose it, suppose it is well known that if men were just clever, God would use them, no matter what their character and conduct might be. Suppose it was understood that you could do as well in the work of God by using means or unfair stratagem to obscure the truth as by honesty and uprightness. What man in the world with any morally right convictions wouldn't be ashamed of such a state of affairs? But it isn't so. Many today tell us that the theater is a great school for morals. That must be a strange school where the teachers never learn their own lessons. In God's school, the teachers must be masters of the art of holiness. If we teach one thing by our lips and another by our lives, those who listen to us will say, Physician, heal yourself. You say, Repent. Where is your repentance? You say, Serve God and be obedient to his will. Do you serve him? Are you obedient to his will? An unholy ministry would be a dishonor to God. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord, Isaiah 52.11. And laughed at in contempt by the world, he will speak through a fool, if he is a holy man, of course. I don't mean God chooses fools to be his ministers, but let a man become really holy, and even if he only has the slightest ability, he will be a more fit instrument in God's hand. 
than the man of great acquired skills, who is not obedient to divine will, nor clean and pure in the sight of the Lord Almighty. I beg you to place the highest importance on your own personal holiness. Live for God. If you don't, your Lord will not be with you. He will say of you, as he said of the false prophets of old, I did not send them, neither have I commanded them, neither did I speak unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision, divination, vanity, and the deceit of their heart. Jeremiah 14.14 You may preach fine sermons, but if you yourself are not holy, souls will not be saved. It is probable that you won't come to the conclusion that your lack of holiness is the reason for your lack of success. Instead, you will blame the people, the age in which you live, anything except yourself. This is the root of the harmful consequence. I know men of considerable ability and diligence who go on year after year without any increase in their churches. The reason is that they aren't living before God as they ought to live. Sometimes the evil is in the family of the minister. His sons and daughters are rebels against God. Bad language is allowed even among his own children, and his reprimands are simply like Eli's placid question to his wicked sons, Why, why do ye do such things? Sometimes the minister is worldly, greedy after advancement and profit, and neglectful of his work. None of this is in line with God's mind, and he will not bless such a man. When I listened to Mr. George Mueller preach at Menton, it was a talk much like an ordinary teacher might give to Sunday school class, yet I never heard a sermon which did me more good, or so richly profited my soul. It was George Mueller in it that made it so useful. In one sense, there was no George Mueller in, in it, for he preached not himself but Christ Jesus the Lord. He was only there in his personality as a witness to the truth. But he bore that witness in such a manner that you couldn't help but say that man not only preaches what he believes, but also what he lives. And every word he uttered his glorious life of faith seemed to fall upon both ear and heart. I was delighted to sit and listen to him, yet there wasn't a trace of compelling reason or something new in the whole discourse. Holiness was the preacher's life, and believe me, if God is to bless us, our strength must lie in that same objective. This holiness ought to show itself in fellowship with God. If a man delivers his own message, it will have as much power as his own character gives to it. However, if he delivers his master's message, having heard it from his master's lips, that will be quite another thing. If he acquired something of the master's spirit as he looked upon him and gave him the message, if he can reproduce the expression of his master's face and the tone of his voice, that's quite another thing. Read McShane's memoir. I can't recommend a more beneficial read. It doesn't offer a fresh or new thought, but even though there isn't anything very original or striking in it, as you read it, it will benefit you. For as you read, you become aware that it is the story of the life of a man who walked with God. Moody would never have spoken with the boldness he did if he hadn't lived a life of fellowship with the Lord and with his son, Jesus Christ. The great strength of the sermon lies in what has gone before the sermon. You must get ready for the whole service through private fellowship with God and real holiness of character. High degree of spiritual life. You will agree, if a man is to be used as a winner of souls, he must have spiritual life to a high degree. 
Our work here on earth under God is to impart life to others. It suits us to imitate Elisha. When he stretched himself upon the dead child and brought him back to life, the prophet's staff wasn't sufficient because it had no life in it, 2 Kings 4. Life must be conveyed by a living instrument, and the man who is to pass on the life must have a great deal of it himself. Remember the words of Christ, He that believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, John 7. That living water is the Holy Spirit. Once he dwells within a living child of God, living water rises out of the very midst of him as a fountain or river, so others may come and participate in the Spirit's gracious influences. I don't think anyone reading this book would wish to be a dead minister. God will not use dead tools to work living miracles. He must have living men, men who are wholly alive. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, he shall also live by me. John 6. While many are alive, they are not completely alive. Once I saw a painting depicting the resurrection of the saints. It was one of the oddest pictures I'd ever laid eyes on. The artist attempted to capture the moment when the work of rebirth was only half done. In the painting, some people were alive, down as far as their waists. Some had one arm alive, and others had only part of their heads alive. When a person is truly regenerated, they are fully alive. But in our day, this depiction is quite possible. We have men who are only half alive. They have a living jaw, but not a living heart. Others have a living heart, but not a living brain. Still others have a living eye. They can see things pretty plainly, but their hearts are not alive. Such men can give good descriptions of what they see, but they cannot. They contain no warmth of love. Some ministers are one half angel and the other half, well, let's say maggots. It's an awful contrast, but instances of this are common. Such ministers preach well, and as you listen to one of them, you say, that's a good man, because you feel he's a good man. If you hear he's going to a certain person's house for supper, you think, I'll go there too, so you can hear the gracious words which will fall from his lips. But when you do, watch what happens. Out they come, not benevolent words, but maggots. What seemed an angel in the pulpit now delivers worms. While this is common, it ought never to be so. If we want to be true witnesses for God, we must be all angel and no part worm. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in the heavens is perfect. God deliver us from this state of semi-death. May we be totally alive from the crown of our head and the sole of our foot. I know ministers who are like this. You can't come into contact with them without feeling the power of the spiritual life within them. It isn't merely while they talk about religious topics. It's evident when they discuss commonplace things of the world. Even then it's obvious there's something about the man which tells you they are wholly alive to God. Men like this will be used by God for the sharing of life with others. A man of humble spirit. Suppose it were possible for you to be exalted into the place of God, what would you do? Do you think you would use a man in your service who thought little of himself, a man of humble spirit? What about a very proud man? Would you be likely to use him as your servant? Certainly the great God has a preference for those who are humble, for thus has said the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is the Holy One. I dwell in the high place and in holiness, and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to cause the spirit of the humble to live and to cause the heart of the contrite to live.
Isaiah 57. He loathes the proud, and whenever he sees those who think they are more important than others, he passes them by. But whenever he finds the lowly in heart, he takes pleasure in exalting them because he delights in humility among his ministers. To see a proud minister is an awful sight because few things can give the devil more joy than this. When he walks about in the world, the devil says, here is something that delights me. All the preparations are in place. Before long, a great fall shall take place. Some ministers even show their pride by their style in the pulpit. You can never forget the way they present their text. It is I, be not afraid, John 6.20. Others manifested in their attire, in the impractical vanity of their dress or in their lewd talk. In such ways, they continually magnify the faults of others and amplify their own extraordinary superiorities. We have two sorts of proud people, and it's difficult to say which of the two is worst. First, we have the sort who are filled with that pride which talks about itself and invites others to talk about it too and pat it on the back and stroke it the right way. It is completely full of its little morsel of self and goes around strutting and saying, praise me, please, praise me, I want it. Like a little child who goes each one in the room and says, see my new dress? Isn't it pretty? It's likely you have seen some of these good-looking sorts who greatly value themselves. I've met many of them. The other kind is too inflated for that sort of thing. It doesn't care for it. In fact, it despises people so much that it doesn't lower itself to wish for their praises. It's so extremely satisfied with itself that it doesn't stoop to consider what others think at all. I have sometimes thought it is the more dangerous kind of pride spiritually, but it's the more respectable of the two. There is, after all, something very noble in being too proud to be proud. Then there's the other poor little soul who says, well, everybody's praise is worth something. So he baits his little traps and tries to catch little bits of praise so he can cook them for his breakfast. He has a mighty appetite for such things. Brothers, get rid of both kinds of pride if you have anything of either of them. The dwarf pride or the ogre pride. Both are abominations in the sight of the Lord. Never forget that you are disciples of him who said, I am meek and humble of heart. Matthew 11. Humility doesn't mean you must think yourself destitute of honor. If a man has a low opinion of himself, it is very possible he is correct in his estimate. I have known people whose opinion of themselves, according to what they have said, was very low. They thought so little of their own ability that they admitted to me they had no independence or resourcefulness, so they never ventured to try to do any good. I've known wonderfully humble people who always like to pick an easy position for themselves. By this I mean they were too humble to do anything that would bring any blame upon themselves, and called it humility. In my mind, sinful love of ease would have been a better name for their behavior. True humility leads you to think rightly and truthfully about yourselves. In the matter of soul winning, humility makes you feel that you are nothing and nobody. Therefore, if God gives you success in the work, you will be driven to assign all the glory to him, because none of the credit can really belong to you. If you don't have success, humility will lead you to blame your own foolishness and weakness, not God's sovereignty. Why should God give blessing and then let you run away with the glory of it? The glory of the salvation of souls belongs to him and him alone. 
why should you try to steal it? Many attempt to steal this glory for themselves with words like, When I was preaching at such and such a place, 15 people came to me at the close of the service and thanked me for the sermon I preached. You and your blessed sermon be hanged. I might have used a stronger word if I had liked, for you are worthy of condemnation whenever you take honor for yourself, which belongs only to God. Remember the story of the young prince who came into the room when he thought his dying father was sleeping, placed the king's crown on his head to see how it would fit. The king, who was actually watching him, said, Wait a little while, my son. Wait till I am dead. So, when you feel any inclination to put the crown of glory on your head, just imagine that you hear God saying, Wait till I am dead before you try on my crown. Since that will never be the case, you had better leave the crown alone and let him to whom it rightfully belongs wear it. Our song must always be not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth. Psalm 115. Some men who never entertained humility have been released from the ministry, for the Lord will not use those unwilling to attribute the honor entirely for himself. Humility is one of the chief qualifications for usefulness. Many have been passed over on the list of useful men because they have fallen into the snare of the devil and are exalted with pride. Perhaps you feel that as a poor student you have no chance of falling into this sin. Actually, it is quite possible. In fact, with some broke students there is all the more danger for one reason. You may fall into pride if God blesses and places you in a prominent position. Oh, can I say amen to that? Watch your hearts. Lord, you see, a man brought up in a circle of fine society, all his life doesn't feel the change as much when he reaches a position others would consider a great elevation. In the case of certain men whom I could name, I feel a great mistake was made. As soon as they were converted, they were taken right out of their former associations and set before the public as popular preachers. It's a great pity that many made little kings of these preachers and, in so doing, prepare the way for their fall. You see, they couldn't bear the sudden change. It would have been better for them if everybody had buckled and bucked and abused them for 10 or 20 years. It would have probably saved them from much misery later. I'm actually grateful for the rough treatment I received in my earlier days from all sorts of people. Back then, the moment I did anything good at all, they were at me like a pack of hounds. It gave me no time to sit down and boast about what I had done, for they continually ranted and rumbled at me. If I had been picked up all of a sudden in position where I am now, I probably would have gone back down again just as quickly. When you get out of college, it will be spiritually healthier for you if you are treated as I was. On the other hand, if you enjoy great success, chances are it will turn your head if God doesn't permit you to be afflicted in some way. If you are ever tempted to say, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom, by the might of my own power, and for the glory of my greatness of Daniel 4? Just remember Nebuchadnezzar when he was driven from among men and ate grass as the ox, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Daniel 4. God has many ways of bringing proud Nebuchadnezzar-like people down, and he can easily humble you too if you are ever lifted up with conceit. This need of deep humility in a soul winner 
is clear in scripture and doesn't need any more proof for everyone with half an eye can see that God is not likely to bless any man much unless he is truly humble.